I want to take us back into the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 1. And as last week, I want to read to you the whole of the benediction, of the prayer, the blessing that he pronounces at the beginning of this letter, which is in chapter 1, verse 3 to 14. If you don't own a Bible or have one in your hand, it will appear on the screen behind me, the words, but otherwise I would obviously encourage you to try and bring one each Sunday. It's so helpful to be able to follow along and, and unpick the meaning of the words and phrases for yourself as you listen. I want to read to you the whole of this section because it does really belong together as a unity But as last week, we chose just one portion of it to try and unfold what Paul was saying, the first section. We're going to go to the middle today, and I'll show you the verses that we'll be looking at. But let's read it all together now. Um, Sorry, I don't mean read it all together in the way some churches do. Not that I have any doubts in your abilities or anything. I will read to you. um, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now these next few verses, verse 7 to 10, are the ones that I want to unpack for you today. He said, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." Now, as I said to you, this whole section does belong together. It's kind of a poem or a prayer or a blessing that Paul wrote. But it is so rich, it's almost overwhelming when you read it. If you've ever been to a restaurant and um, had a tasting menu where they might bring to you 7, 10, 12 dishes, each of them small and extraordinary and delicious in and of themselves, not enough Uh, one by one to satisfy you, but overwhelming in the whole thing. It's like when you read that all together, it's like having a tasting menu all on your plate in one go. And so you have to kind of take this phrase by phrase almost, or in section by section in a way, and unfold what Paul is saying here, because it is so dense and so rich and so beautiful. And this middle section that we're going to be looking at that began in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. I want to unpack through a word that is given to us right there in the ninth verse where he said, making known to us the mystery of his will. This word mystery. And through that we'll have a lens into what it is that Paul's trying to help these Ephesian Christians to see. This word mystery is a word that occurs quite a few times in Paul's letters. And it's a way that he tries to capture the extraordinary newness of the gospel that he was preaching and the power that it brought into the world to change individuals, cities, nations, to change the world itself. This mystery had come in. What does he mean by the word mystery? This word, in English at least, it has a number of connotations and I just want to push aside a few of those so that we can be very clear on what it is he's saying here. The word mystery is not knowledge that's reserved for elites. It's not like the way that your phone might be a mystery to you. I don't, I'm not talking about if you're old. I just mean if, you know, we, we don't know how these things work, do we? We don't understand the innards of the thing. Or how, you know, baking or the economics might be a mystery to you, whatever it is. There's so many fields of knowledge in this world that are reserved for elites whose mind are dedicated to those things. And there's no hint in the Bible that the gospel is in any way an elite Uh, knowledge, a body of knowledge. A child can understand if they have eyes to see it. 
So the word mystery isn't referring in that sense to anything elite, nor is it speaking of something that you have to somehow figure out um, by, you know, we, we speak these days of a mystery as being something that you might enjoy unraveling and figuring out, um, like an escape room or your wife if you're married. And nor is it something that's a kind of members-only secret. There are mysterious organizations, aren't there, where they have mystery knowledge bound up in their organization where you might have a secret handshake. And so the word mystery can have this kind of idea of knowledge that's reserved only for those who are members. And of course, again, although there were movements in the early church that kind of viewed some aspects of Christian truth like that, they were entirely wrong. There's nothing that's viewed as more... um, more open and more liberally available than the gospel. The, the, the charge and mission of the church is to make known to everyone. There's nothing exclusive about the church. And when the church becomes exclusive as though we have, we have an answer that the world doesn't know and, and cannot know, then that's, the church is broken. So the word mystery doesn't mean that. What it rather means in the New Testament, particularly in the letters of Paul, is something that had been hidden for centuries and for millennia and was perhaps only visible in shadows and forms, but never in its, in its reality. But it has now been unraveled and opened up to us. That's what the word mystery means in Paul's letters. And not only is it something that was hidden chronologically and then has been made known, but it's also something that you could never have figured out by yourself. That there is an element or aspects of the gospel that no human could have grasped or penetrated or unraveled or guessed at or worked out by intelligence, it had to be communicated to us and revealed to us by God. That's what the word mystery means in Paul's letters. That's why in in one of Peter's letters, when he's speaking about the gospel, he describes it as something into which angels long to look. It's this idea that even angels were peering in, waiting for it all to be unfolded, the mystery of what God was going to do in the world. It would be unfolded, and then we'll be able to see and be like that ah moment when suddenly everything makes sense, what God had planned and wanted to accomplish in order to rescue us. So then this is what the word mystery means, and that'll be our key to kind of unfold what Paul is saying to to the Ephesians here in this moment. What is the mystery made known about them? And really what it centers on, what this mystery is all about, is the ultimate question that has faced every generation of humans since the dawn of time, really, which is how to fix what's broken. I think that every religion, every philosophy, Every political ideology, every work of art, every movie made in Hollywood, everything that humans create and dialogue about is ultimately trying to unravel the answer to that question. How do we fix what's broken? Because we look at ourselves and we see brokenness inside of us, first of all. And nobody is a Christian who hasn't been able to acknowledge at some moment in their life the reality of a brokenness inside. It may be that you're new to faith and new to religion in general and new to the church, and you may think, well, Christians are people who, who are arrogant, who are proud, who act as though they've got everything together. And I want to say to you that's the exact opposite of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who has looked at their own life and said, there is something in me that I cannot fix. And we know it about ourselves, but we also know it about the world in general. Every morning I listen to the radio, old school, I listen to the news that way and try and just catch up on what's happening in the world and it's almost invariably the great problems that are facing us. Fires and war and cruel dictators and the mess of injustice on our own shores and overseas everywhere. Brokenness, brokenness, chaos, darkness. And the great agony, the the question that we wrestle with generation after generation is how on earth can all of this be put to rights? How can it be fixed? And then Christianity enters the scene through the preaching, the announcement, the declaration of the apostles in the first century began preaching about what God had done. And they begin preaching about a resurrected Savior. But it all begins with this diagnosis, understanding what it is that's actually broken that had to be fixed. 
And the Christian answer to that question is that everything, all the brokenness we see around us and outside of us and all the brokenness that we experience inside of us, all stems back to a diagnosis that the Bible describes with the word sin. And it's not necessarily that it's speaking so much about sins. You and I commit sins all the time. But rather, it's used in the singular to speak about something that's more like a disease that has affected the entirety of God's creation. One analogy that I heard a speaker use to kind of try and communicate the way in which this brokenness has affected everything was that you can imagine God's creation as in its perfection like a beautiful bauble. You buy them at Christmas, some of them made out of blown glass, perfect in their form, and attached by a single string to the tree from which it hangs. And there's a sense in which when sin entered the world, it wasn't that just one aspect of the creation was affected, but rather the the string was cut and the bauble was shattered completely. And so what the Bible shows us is that sin is the problem and that what it has resulted in is that all of us experience something of the slavery to sin, the corruption that comes into our lives and that's around us everywhere and is evident for all to see, and the decay that has been brought in to the whole world. You know this when you think about humanity, of course. Jesus said it in his in own words when he diagnosed this. He said in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So the Bible says the problem with humanity is that we are enslaved to our desires. We're enslaved to our, to our corrupted wills. You might try and improve your life, but ultimately you'll experience a real sense of frustration and futility because this slavery is the fundamental problem. But the Bible doesn't only say that that slavery is true of us as individuals or as humanity in general. It also says that the entirety of God's creation, every created thing, is experiencing something of this slavery that sin has affected the entire universe so that every atom is somehow affected by it. It says in Romans chapter 8 that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So here's what the Bible assumes and what Paul assumes when he begins to write to the Ephesians. He says, look, the diagnosis that the scripture gives of the problem that we see everywhere and the problem that you experience in your own life and the problem that you see all around you in the actions of humans, but also in creation in general, in the sense that things don't seem to operate as they should. The agonizing cry that we feel in our hearts, how can this be put right? All stems back to this diagnosis that the entirety of creation is subject to this kind of slavery. In the ancient world, there was this, obviously you know that slavery was widespread in the culture to which Paul preached and ministered. There were slaves in the church to which he was writing. And a a slave in the ancient world could be bought out of slavery. A ransom payment could be paid. A redemption price could be paid in order to purchase someone out of slavery and bring them into a state of freedom, of manumission, of release from slavery. And the great discovery, the light that had switched on for the apostles and which Paul understood and which he felt that the New Testament believers had to understand was the goodness of God in that he had paid a ransom price for us through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead, the very thing that we celebrate today. Which is why this part opens with these words, in him we have redemption. In him we have a ransom. So that what was enslaved has now been set free by Jesus. Now, I want to further consider with you why Paul describes this all as a mystery. You may have heard this hundreds of times, the the message of Christianity, the gospel of the Savior who died for us, or it may be the first time you've heard it today. But what I want to show you is some ways in which this is something that you could never have understood 
were it not, if God had not spoken, if God had not acted in history through the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you could never have anticipated or expected, but which has confounded minds ever since and caused men and women to gasp with amazement. And let me show you a few facets of what this mystery is and how it's been made known. Here's the first. What Paul shows us is that this redemption is a mystery because it is more costly than you ever could have known. It's more costly. And he says it here in verse 7 when he said that in him we have redemption through his blood. Now the reason why I think we could never have quite comprehended the cost of what it would take to ransom us from the mess that we're in is because as humans, I don't think we naturally understand, comprehend, or grasp the depth of our problem. Even as I speak about sin, I suspect there are some of you here who immediately feel your internal God go up. Ah, that's that kind of church, is it? It's that kind of preaching. I thought we were past that. That was something from previous generations. The reality is that all of us are aware, aren't we, of sin and guilt in our lives. You're conscious of it. You have a conscience, and your conscience sometimes accuses you. Not all the time, but from time to time. You feel wretched about yourself. And the trouble is that although all humans are aware that we have a sickness inside of us, I think we make two fatal errors of judgment about this problem. The first error of judgment is that we tend to downgrade our problem by comparing ourselves with other humans. The fact is that when you compare your life with others, you will find people who are better than you. You feel a little bit annoyed with them. But by and large, you'll look around, you'll survey friends, colleagues, maybe the city or maybe the world and what you see on the news, and you'll, you'll make the rough estimation that you are above average. Everyone assesses themselves as being above average to excellent, right? <laughs> and if everyone's above average to excellent, then clearly some of us are making a misjudgment here, aren't we? <laughs> Pure maths tells you that. We make this error of judgment in that we compare ourselves horizontally, and when we compare ourselves horizontally, we come off looking pretty good. You know, I'm not a dictator invading a country against its own will. I'm not a brutal gang leader. I'm not one of these really corrupt people, so I'm okay. The other fatal error of judgment we make alongside this is that we tend to think about God as merely on a spectrum with us. He's better, of course, but he's on the same plane. We form God in our own image. It's true of every religion and idolatry that's existed since the dawn of creation. When the Bible says about God, when it uses the language of God and describes him as being holy, the word holy means that he's altogether different. He's on another plane entirely. Which means that when we pull God down to us and just imagine him as being on a spectrum with us, somehow we make him more reachable than he really is. Somehow we make him more on a level with us than he is in reality. And the consequence of all this is that we vastly underestimate the scale of our problem and the depth of our debt, as the Bible describes it, in terms of the wrongs that we committed against him. One great proof of this, to my mind, is the vague and general optimism that exists in this world around spiritual things. You see it in religious people and you see it in irreligious people. Every religion peddles the same idea that if you try hard enough by an act, actions of self-improvement, you can attain a level that will ultimately mean that you've arrived. Every religion tells you that message and so you see billions of people the world over Striving a little bit harder, trying to reach a level that they think is adequate. And on the other hand, it seems to me that irreligious people believe the same myth as well because I've spoken to so many people who don't actively follow God, but they seem to buy into a vague and general optimism. They say, well, if there is a God, I'm sure he's okay with me. 
And so we sort of blithely go on with our lives as though there isn't something deadly, urgent to be dealt with inside of us. But the Bible leads us to begin to comprehend the scale of this problem in ways that when you see it for the first time can feel almost overwhelming to your soul. There was a preacher in America, one of America's greatest thinkers and philosophers also, a man called Jonathan Edwards, who tried to explain and articulate why it would be just for God to judge humans, even eternally. And the way that he tried to understand the scale of our problem was by helping you understand the scale of who God is and the greatness of his person, how infinite he is, so that to sin against him is something of infinite problem, is infinitely problematic, you could say. And he wrote this, he said, sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving infinite punishment. If there is any evil in sin against God, it is infinite evil. And I think he was putting his finger on one of the problems that I think we, certainly in the modern Western world, almost invariably fail to grasp and to understand, which is the wickedness of sin. We tend to excuse and cover over our sins as though they were small issues. And the problem that Jonathan Edwards is highlighting here is that we don't really understand the dignity of God and what it means to commit a wrong act against him. You see, your acts, the wrongs that you do in life, are made more wrong by the dignity of the person that you commit the wrong against. If you go and slap a fellow comedian, people will put the question in the balance. Is it wrong? Isn't it wrong? You know, let's debate that. If you go and slap the president, you'll be in prison. Now, since God is so much infinitely greater than any person, even the wrongs of our hearts are a debt that you and I cannot repay. That's what Scripture is teaching us. And if you can't repay them, then the question is, well, how on earth can you be purchased out of slavery if the cost is so great? And the Bible says that the only way that you and I can be purchased out of slavery is through atonement. In the book of Hebrews, it puts it like this, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Humans have known this. It's been lost to us, I think, in the modern world because we think we've moved beyond this. But quite individually and separately, in cultures all around the world since the dawn of time, there has been an intuitive, inbuilt, almost reflexive knowledge that the only way to deal with our wickedness is through the shedding of blood. And so you've seen sacrifice and sacrifices of atonement in religions the world over. What the Bible also shows you is that no sacrifice is adequate. What possible sacrifice could atone for the wickedness of my heart, not to mention the sins of the entire world? And that's the great problem that faced faced and faces humanity. And the great answer which Paul now points us to when he says, this is the mystery now revealed, that in him we have redemption through his blood. It says in, in Hebrews chapter 9, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, 
He's talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system, the like of which you see in so many religions. He said, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here's what Paul's saying to us in Ephesians when he describes the redemption through his blood. He's asking the question, what is it that we now see that we didn't see before? What is the great mystery that's unraveled? And the answer is this, that a man had to die in order to make atonement for all the sins of the world. And that that man had to be perfect. My blood couldn't atone for anyone's sins because my blood is impure. Your blood could not accomplish anything. But there is one who lived before us, whose blood ran pure, whose every inclination of heart was a desire to please God, who was not tainted by the sin in which he lived among the people. Temptation never had a foothold in his heart. And in all of that perfection, as he bled out his life blood, his blood was sufficient to atone because Jesus is the Son of God. This is the mystery. And it's something that no one could have seen in advance. It's why even as Jesus is announcing it to his disciples, even days before his crucifixion, saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and I will have to die, even then it makes no sense to their minds. It's only with hindsight that we look back And we gasp at the beauty of the gospel that God provided the sacrifice. In him we have ransom payment, the blood of Jesus. It's more costly than you ever could have known. This is why it's a mystery. Another aspect of this is that it is also more lavish than you ever could have expected or imagined or anticipated. And here's what Paul tells us. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He uses three different phrases to try and communicate to us the scale and magnificence and generosity of God, the riches of his grace lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. What he's trying to communicate to us here, I think, is this, that there is no way that you or I could ever have anticipated the scale of the generosity of God in the way that he would pay a ransom price for our sins. Now, the reason why we don't quite quite grasp this and why we always underestimate the generosity of God is because of this. I think humans are hardwired. They were hardwired to think in terms of law and le- what the Bible describes as legalism. And that might be, these might be new phrases to you, so let me explain what I mean. What it means is this, is that you and I think that basically in order to receive something good in life, we have to earn it. And that's true, isn't it, in life out there? It's true especially in religion. All of us approach faith and religion with that mindset. We enter into it thinking, what is it that I have to do? What are the hoops I need to jump through? What is the bar I need to jump over? How do I accomplish what needs to be accomplished? And our hearts and our minds and our souls are hardwired to think this way. And this is, is, is so easily proved. It's proved, first of all, when you look at religions all the world over. And you see that every one of them offers you a path. It says, work harder and you'll get there. I remember reading an account of C.S. Lewis a conference of uh, different people discussing comparative religions, and it was in a book called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. Here's what he wrote. He said, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. So what is it that distinguishes Christianity from every other faith? And so they began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, the idea of God becoming man, Other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection, what we celebrate today, they said again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about? He asked. (laughs) I know some of you from overseas, you never heard the word rumpus. (laughs) It's dating the uh, anecdote, isn't it? But he was living in the middle of the last century, 
What's all the fuss about? And heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is the idea that God gives us something for free. Quite apart from any effort you or I make to earn it. And my contention is that I think this is something that the human heart finds almost impossibly, impossible to grasp, to understand, or to comprehend. Because when we think about religion, every religion says, no, 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 you have to work. You better work. And even if you put aside religion for a second, I think it's true also of humans in general, just when you look at examining culture at large. You know, in the Bible, Jesus used to lampoon the most legalistic, self-righteous characters of his day who were the Pharisees. And they would tithe their garden herbs. They were so devoted to following the letter of the law. And he lampooned them and he criticized them for their pride, for the fact that they were hypocrites because even though they obeyed the laws externally, their hearts were vile cesspits and for their judgmentalism of others. And if I ask you the question, look, when you look around at culture today, do you see pride? Do you see people judging one another? Do you see performance of righteousness, that hypocrisy where people want to pretend they're so great because of the things that they're doing? And I tell you, 100% yes. The only difference with the culture at large when we think about these patterns that are playing out in all the culture wars and all the, the justice issues and all the ways in which people campaign on this issue and that, the only difference between the way it carries out on out there and the way it carries on in religion is that out there there's no option of forgiveness. If somehow you fall short of the mark, that's it, you're done. Forever. So don't tell me that we're less religious these days. We're, we're absolutely religious. And we're just as prone to that same fundamental human instinct and drive to want to be better, to be better than others, and to earn and attain a standard that sets you apart above the rest, whether you're trying to reach heaven or not. It's hardwired into us. It's a human nature. Which is why it made no sense. When God comes along and says, I'm going to offer you what you're trying to earn, but I'm going to give it to you for free. Even when people have been Christians a long time, we still struggle to accept that God would give us for free what we think we ought to earn by rights. Jerry Bridges, in his wonderful book, I would say it's a book that actually changed my life. The Discipline of Grace. I read it about 20 years ago. He describes how even when we believe grace, the idea that God is kind to us and loves us and accepts us on the basis of what Christ has done, not on the basis of what you have done. Nevertheless, my heart and my emotions are still so controlled by my own performance. He described it as good day, bad day syndrome. One day, I feel like I'm doing amazingly. All my goals are being ticked and I've not fallen short of my own standards and then I feel puffed up with pride and joy at myself and self-congratulatory happiness. That's a good day. And then there's a bad day where I seem to get off to a wrong foot even from the moment I wake up or don't wake up as it may be. And then, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm starting the day from a position of failure. And then failure is compounded with more failure. And I end up doing things I wish I hadn't done, saying things I wish I hadn't said, and falling short of my own standards, never mind God's, and then I feel full of self-loathing and mess. And he said, look, this, all of this, the highs and the lows, all of it is symptomatic of the fundamental problem that you think that you relate to God on the basis of what you have done. And the Bible says, no, in him we have redemption. You've been ransomed through his blood. And not only that, He's given you the forgiveness of, of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And how rich is God? Do you think you can exhaust the riches of his grace? Do you think that you could ever accumulate a debt so big that God could not repay through the blood of his son? 
Do you think it's possible to be such a bad person that you're somehow beyond the kindness and generosity and the favor and the love of God? And this is what was utterly mind-blowing for the Apostle Paul. Firstly, for himself. Because he looked at his own life and said, how is it that I, so wretched as I have been, could ever be acceptable to God given that I was a murderer and someone who tried to kill Christians? The assessment he gives of his own life as an old man writing to a younger pastor called Timothy. He said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And he says, but I receive mercy for this reason. Why was God kind to the Apostle Paul? This venomous, hate-filled, judgmental fanatic who had made it his mission to kill Christians. Why was God merciful to him? He said, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the one who is the worst sinner of all, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So friends, what he's saying is this. Unless somehow you have managed to out-sin the worst sinner who's ever lived, then brother, sister, you're safe. The reason Jesus saved Paul, who was right at the bottom of the pile, was to demonstrate that he could save everyone else, including you. To show that your sin is not too dark so as to separate you from God. That it's so dark that his light can't penetrate To show you that you cannot be too far gone. Your faith can't be too weak. Because all of it rests not upon you, but upon the abundance of the lavishness of the riches of the grace of God. Which is why a Christian is, a Christ, is someone who fundamentally looks at their own life and says, Here I am by the generosity of God, not because of anything I have done. And this is a word for some of you, I think, who are not yet Christian. You're wondering, how could I ever attain this? And the whole point is, you have, here's the thing, the mystery that you now need to understand. It's not about that. It never was. It was about receiving something as a gift from God. But I also think this has to be hammered home, even for some of you who've been Christians for years, because you're coming in here with your head hung low. Because you're looking at your life and you're seeing your problems. And you're seeing your inadequacies and you're seeing the way in which you, you fall short of your own standards. And the gospel comes in and says, friends, you're redeemed according to the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us. God is a generous father. And also there's a word here for those of you who think you're something. You can never, ever be judgmental and proud as a believer because you didn't earn it, brother, sister. It was all him. Redemption through his blood. And the Lord picks you up, dusts you off, clothes you in righteousness, cleans you up, makes you like Jesus, and you can breathe. And that stress tension in your shoulders can be released. And that migraine headache can be dispelled. And that despairing, self-condemnatory thought that, that, that you wrestle with and go round and round with when you're on your, on your bed at night and your head is on your pillow, that can, be, that can be dismissed. And you can know I'm loved. This is the mystery revealed. It's so much better than anyone could have imagined. No one ever thought of this. A, a message, a Christian, a, you know, a religious message in which the message is, you don't need to do anything, it's all done for you. It makes no sense. How are you meant to corral people and control them to be better? You can't. And yet people's lives are changed when they understand this. Suddenly they want to change. Not compelled by fear, but, but compelled by joy. 
fueled and empowered by the generosity of God that has been piled and heaped upon them. This is Christianity. Maybe you didn't understand this before. This is what the faith is all about. That's grace, my friend. Let me show you one last thing. Not only is this redemption more costly than you could have known and more lavish than you could have imagined, it's also much bigger, much more expansive than you ever could have expected. And this is what Paul says about this mystery. It says in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, this is such a mystery that even to this day, Christians, many, many Christians still don't understand this. It's a point on which we remain confused and uncertain. You see, we tend to think about salvation and and what Jesus has done for us by dying on the cross in purely individualistic terms, in the narrowest sense possible. Jesus has come to save souls. And the way in which we conceive of this is we think about the world as being like a burning building. And Jesus is like a heroic fireman who runs into the building and pulls out person after person while the structure burns to the ground. Or we think about it as a great ship, like the Titanic. And Jesus is like the Coast Guard coming along and rescuing individuals and pulling them into his lifeboat so that the whole thing can just sink to the bottom of the ocean to be frozen in time. And so what we tend to assume is that The message of Christianity is, get out while you can. Everything's going to ruin. Anything else you do in this world is totally meaningless because it's all going to burn in the end anyway. The only thing that's important is that Jesus saves you for heaven. And what I want to say to you is, friends, that's not the gospel that the apostles believed and preached. Look again, and you'll see a few things in these verses. The scope, the focus, and the timescale of this redemption plan that God is working out. And the most important of these I want you to grasp here is the scope of it. The scope, how broad this is. What Paul says is that God had a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. What this means, friends, and what the Bible had been promising and speaking about even before the arrival of Jesus was that this world was always longing to be fixed. The Messiah's job was to come and fix what's broken. Which is why when Isaiah, for example, one of the prophets who lived 700 years before Jesus, when he was envisioning the future of a redeemed world, he described it with language like this. He said, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. It's the closest the Bible ever comes to advocating veganism. I'll give you that. (laughs) Leave that one for another day. (laughs) The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What you're seeing described there is is the world. This world. But a world emptied of all the wickedness and the brutality and the chaos and the brokenness that it's currently characterized by. In the New Testament, it's alluded to in numerous places, but I think, for example, of Hebrews 2. He quotes Psalm 8, which says, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8 is talking about the rule of humanity over the planet. God gave this world to humans to rule. And ultimately to one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And And then he comments this. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. The whole universe is Jesus's. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him. 
What he's speaking about there is he's putting into our hearts the hope. Okay, we see things are broken. But we also see a ruler who's capable and competent to set things in order. There's in Japan an art form called kintsugi. Where you take a broken pot and it's artistically fixed by creating a lacquer using crushed and powdered metals like gold and silver and platinum. And they're turned into the glue. And every piece is lovingly put back into its correct place. But now the pot or the bowl or the vase has these marks of these precious metals at all the joins. And the idea and the philosophy behind it is that the breaking and the repairing of objects is not something to be hidden and kept a secret, but rather is something that is now part of their history. And it seems to me that that's almost a perfect picture of what God is doing with this world. It's not that God's going to trash the whole thing and make a new one. And it's not that his glue is going to be so invisible to the human eye that it'll be as though nothing ever went wrong in the first place. We're just going to return to Eden. No, no, no. Somehow the future is going to be better than both of those options because it'll be this world. This world. But in a redeemed form. With every crack and broken element now made into something beautiful, a feature that brings glory to the Savior who redeemed the whole thing. Which is why you see the heavenly hosts in Revelation singing to the Lamb, looking as though he had been slain, celebrating the blood of Christ for all eternity because his blood repaired, redeemed, ransomed the whole world. That's the scope of salvation. It's not just about rescuing you and me from this sinking ship. Jesus is going to come and fix the whole thing. The focus... What Paul says here is that it's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. It was always about Jesus. You see, when God made the world and he appointed Adam to be king over the garden along with his wife, who was the queen, Eve, and said, you are here to rule, you're to have dominion, and Adam failed and brought sin into creation, God's plan never actually altered. It's just that the, the power and the rule and the dominion fell on a better Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The plan was always that this world would be ruled by a man. It just had to be a worthy man. Which is why this world is going to be beautiful, because Christ will come in and is coming in as a liberating conqueror. You know when a liberating conqueror moves into a bloodshed land stained by war? Some aspects of what he does to unite all things in him will be judgment. Putting the wicked where they belong. But other aspects will be unity and beauty and healing and reconstruction. The time scale. A plan for the fullness of time. I know that some of you are thinking, well look, If Jesus accomplished all of this at the cross, if Jesus' blood redeemed the world when he died, and that was 2,000 years ago, why is it that we still see so much mess and brokenness in this world? And the answer that the Bible gives is that although everything was accomplished in principle when Jesus died and was raised from the dead on the cross, the outworking of that is still being born into effect day after day, year after year, century after century. Because in the Bible, we're led to see that God's timescales are very different from ours. A thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years. And the way that I like to think about this is like the inevitable incoming of the tide. If you sit on a beach on the shoreline, as the tide is coming in, wave after wave will hit you. And a wave will hit you, and then it will recede down the beach. And then you'll be hit by another wave, and then it will recede down the beach. And you could fool yourself into thinking that the the sea's going out because you can't quite perceive. Occasionally you're hit and occasionally it's going out. But over time, that sea is moving in and in with a relentless march. 
Don't be fooled by the waves lapping in and out all the time, in other words. The whole movement is in. The tide is rising. And that's how I read history. When I see what Christ accomplished on the cross, if you ask honestly, are things the same as they were 2,000 years ago? The honest answer is absolutely not. What Jesus accomplished on the cross has changed the world beyond recognition. The tide is rising. And of course, there are moments of history like the waves. Britain, an island that we live on, heard the gospel. Many people became Christians and then descended into the darkness of medieval superstition. Heard the gospel again as the Reformation broke on our shores, descended into the darkness of all kinds of rebellion. Heard the gospel again in the 1700s, the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield, so the great swathes of the population were flooding the churches again. And then the waves have receded, so that now we see many churches empty. But don't be fooled by these momentary waves coming in and out. It's true across Europe as well. Look at the bigger picture. What you see is Christ and his inevitable, unstoppable commitment to make the world his own. In the fullness of time. Which is why when Paul's writing about this in Philippians 2, he says... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we bow our heads. This is the mystery revealed, friends. A message which, when understood, has a power to reform you from the inside out and is, as we speak, changing the world. Redemption by Jesus. A ransom price paid by the Son of God to bring everything under his rule and reign, including you and me. It may be the case that some of you here today have been on the edge wondering whether you want to become a Christian, whether you want to follow Jesus. And I want to encourage you, friend, there is no time like the present. The Bible puts it this way. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If you feel that quickness of heartbeat, that sense inside, I need to follow Jesus. I recognize that he paid the ransom for my life. Then do not hesitate to ask him to come in and save you. It is as simple as saying, Lord, forgive me. Save me.